Hi, it's Holly here, and you're at the second location, and we're going to continue our discussion about the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. And right now, we're going to move into the trial phase. The first up for trial will be Rob. And as the trial date grows closer, the state is desperate to eliminate inconsistencies between the known facts of the case and mainly Mike Scott's confession. A major problem is where the fire started. Now, the investigators begin to work on Melvin Stahl. He's the original arson investigator. And Stahl had worked for the Austin Fire Department for over 25 years, and he was now retired. And Melvin, along with the two other original arson experts at the crime scene, all three of them had agreed that the fire originated on the melted storage shelves in the back room. In Mike Scott's confession, he said that the guys had piled styrofoam cups on the girls' bodies and doused them in lighter fluid before igniting the styrofoam cups with a Zippo lighter. Of the many inconsistencies in Mike's confession, this is one that the state thinks that they can fix. If they can get Melvin Stahl to change his mind about where the fire started and to have his opinion align with Mike Scott's confession, that will help the state's case. And the investigators do it. They managed to get Melvin Stahl to change his original assessment that the fire started on that shelving unit in the back room till the fire started with the girls' bodies, even though he had always believed that the fire started on the shelves from the time he went to the crime scene until even after the four young men were arrested. His opinion was always that the fire had started on the shelves, but the state's able to persuade him to change his mind. The investigators turned to an outside fire expert who they knew and who was, I would say, friendly to the investigation. His name's Marshall Littleton, and he's from the ATF. And despite his initial refusals to help, the investigators were able to convince him to use software that used modeling to recreate a crime scene. And you input all the dimensions of the area, the burn marks, where doors and windows are. They're all put under this program, and a pattern of the fire can be derived from this software. Now, after trying several times, a model that fit the state's case was found, but the answers supplied by the modeling experiment didn't match what the state needed. The state needed the fire to start on the girls' bodies. And even with this new software, it's not matching up. So it appears that pressure was applied to the fire expert to get him to change his findings so they would be in accordance with the prosecution's new theory. Basically, that napkins and styrofoam cups were stacked on the girls' bodies with lighter fluid, and that's where the fire started. After changing some facts about the scene, some may have been incorrect, I'm not really sure, but the software was able to come up with new findings that were used to help convince Melvin Stahl to change his original determination that the fire started on the shelves to match Mike's confession that the fire started with the girls. And it worked. By the time the first trial rolled around, Melvin Stahl was ready to testify that the fires had started on the girls' bodies, just like Mike Scott's confession. Even though for the previous nine years, he had been adamant that the fire started on the shelves that held the napkins and styrofoam cups in the back room. So we have the state here trying to line up their ducks, getting the testimony from the fire expert to be able to be in line with the confessions that they have. So let's get to it and really start to move along here. 
After the judge denies the defense's repeated requests for more time to prepare for trial, Rob Springsteen goes to trial first. His wife shows up early in the process, but only stays a few days. And Rob says that he didn't want his family there, but it still hurts my heart that he faced a trial that could have resulted in his execution with only really his grandmother there to support him. And he had to face a trial for his life with very little family support because the prosecution had subpoenaed most of his family, meaning they couldn't attend the trial. Um, when you're on the witness list, generally speaking, you cannot be in the court and watch testimony. Sometimes courts make exceptions for family members. Usually it's when you're a family member of the victim, of what's what I've seen more of. Now, while Rob said he didn't want his family there, because he said he doesn't want his family being drug into a mess that he feels he alone created with his false confession. And while I respect that, I think I would have to be there anyway. This is just something that one should not face alone. Now, okay, there's a lot of rulings in this case by the judge that I just disagree with. And before the trial begins, the judge rules, and this one's really a head-scratcher for me, that the jury is not permitted to take notes during the trial during testimony. And I mean, it's just one of many rulings I don't agree with. But really, what is the point of this ruling that prohibits the jury from taking notes? I mean, it, I don't see the sense of it at all. But it was during Rob's trial that for the first time, the public officially heard the details of the girls' deaths. And while there had been substantial leaks of held back information, as a trial, the deaths would be examined in detail in a level that had never happened before. The court and the public hear that the girls were forced to undress in the back room, and it appeared that this was a slow process as the girls' clothing was all folded neatly in individual stacks of clothing. At least two of the girls were bound with undergarments. You know, underwear and bras were used to tie the girls' hands behind their backs. Amy was not bound. Three of the girls were gagged with their socks. Only Amy didn't have a gag, but she had a sock tied around her neck like a noose-like collar. The prosecution alleged at trial that three of the girls were killed first execution style with a shot to the back of the head with a 22 caliber bullet and that Amy's murder happened slightly later and that her ordeal was more prolonged. In all those years since the murders, many people had thought about the horrors that happened in that back room that night. But from Rob's trial, they learned that it was worse than what they had imagined. And sadly, the youngest victim may have suffered the most at the hands of her killers. The prosecution chose to open their case with a family member of one of the victims. Little Amy Ayers' dad, Bob Ayers, testified, and he described Amy as just the quintessential cowgirl and just was absolutely glowing in his description of his daughter. After that moving testimony from Amy's dad, one of the prosecution's next witnesses was the forensic investigator from Texas's Department of Public Safety, Irma Rios. And her testimony would have been comical due to the level of incompetence on display if the situation, you know, hadn't been so tragic. The forensic team failed to collect or maintain vital pieces of evidence. The lock to the back door that appeared to have been tampered with was lost. The shelves were not retained. And they failed to take really truly extensive photographs of the crime scene. And Irma Rios was just so clearly out of her depth. I mean, when you see her at the crime scene, first off, no one's wearing booties. And it's just like almost precious. This woman in this wet, sooty environment that is the crime scene is wearing like Keds, like little white canvas Keds. I just don't think she knew where she was. 
or at least did not address appropriately for it. When she testified, she was asked if she had noted any marks on Amy's face, and Irma responded that she remembered a, quote, stain on her cheek. The stain was, in fact, the exit wound from the 380 bullet. But Irma, how to lose a lock or not collect fingerprints? Did she really think the exit wound was a port wine stain? But she claimed that she wasn't even aware that the girls had been shot, which is weird because it seems like she's the only person in the greater Austin area that didn't know that the girls had been shot. And she is a forensic person. They recovered casings from the scene. At that point, I begin to think the victims could have been shot. You know, the idea of it should be on your radar, Irma. I mean, this expert, she just gives me the impression that she felt like not knowing stuff was an accomplishment or a way to get out of an uncomfortable answer. She also explained how evidence was collected by passing material through a sifter while they were pouring water over the material because everything was so mushy. And she admitted that she didn't change gloves between taking samples. And that's not a good collection procedure. Gloves should be changed after each swab is taken to prevent cross-contamination. But she did not do that. Let me just list off here the ways that the forensic team failed. Now, this isn't just Irma failing, but she's the head of the team, so I think it falls back on her mainly, but here's the list. The bathrooms were not dusted for fingerprints. Remember, in Rob Springsteen's confession, he says he went into the bathroom. They never dusted for fingerprints, so they can never verify that. The items in the shop were not inventoried, so you couldn't tell if anything was missing. The steel shelves that were originally... That was where the arson investigators believed that the fire had started. They were not retained as evidence. They might have been collected, but at some point they go missing. So I'm unclear on whether, whether they were just not collected or whether they were lost. The scene was not searched in a grid-style method, which is customary. The investigators did not wear booties. There was no log of people that went into the crime scene. The dumpster out back had not been searched, just peeked into. The ladder, mop, melted phone, and mop bucket were not even collected as evidence. And like I said, that log from the back door that looks like it might have been pried or something, a tool may have been used on it, that was missing from evidence. She also admitted that she didn't take pictures of the floor directly underneath each girl's body after the bodies had been removed. And this is important because it could have showed if the bodies were moved after the fire started. Because it looked like there was a bare spot under Jennifer's body, which would likely indicate that her body was in the position in which she was found when the fire started. Which matters because some people had thought that the girls may have been originally in one large pile, but Amy toppled it and tried to escape. But the killer saw this and shot her again. But if there is unburnt floor underneath Jennifer's body, that means she was where she was found when the fire reached her body. So that makes it less likely that the girls were all stacked together and that Amy tried to flee and toppled um, Jennifer off the stack of girls. I feel very uncomfortable saying stack of girls. I really don't like it. I, I, I really wish I could have thought another way to word that, but it's just, I don't have it. The forensic investigation of the crime scene overall, it's just, let's just call it shoddy. It took longer for the forensic team to arrive at the yogurt shop than they actually spent at the yogurt shop. And I think that says it all. The investigator also admitted that she couldn't smell any accelerant at the crime scene, which doesn't match Mike's confession about the lighter fluid. One of the next important witnesses after the head of the forensic team was the medical examiner. Now, according to his testimony, Amy had a gunshot wound at the top of her head 
and ligature marks around her neck, along with petechial hemorrhaging all over her face and in her eyes, showing that Emily had been strangled by a ligature prior to her death. Amy also had a second gunshot wound to the back of her head near her ear, and he testified that this shot would have killed her instantly, and that this second shot was a contact gunshot with the gun pressed right up against her skin. The bullet struck her brainstem and exited through the little girl's cheek. All four girls were shot at a point-blank range in the back of their heads with a 22 caliber bullet. In all rounds, the 22 rounds, they all remained within the bodies. Only the 380 that Amy had been shot with, that is the only gunshot wound that had an exit wound. And all four were dead before the fire reached them. This is all according to the medical examiner. Now, before the defense questioned the medical examiner, the defense attorney, this is Joe Sayer, he called for a sidebar at the judge's bench, and the attorney admitted that he was near tears after hearing the medical examiner's testimony and had just reminded him how much these girls had suffered. Now, this slightly surprised the judge, and he called a 10-minute recess so the defense attorney could pull himself together. On cross, the medical examiner said that he couldn't tell exactly the order of the wounds, but that Amy's wound from the 380 was definitely the last shot fired and immediately fatal. But he could not tell, for example, if the shot from the 22 or strangulation from the ligature came first. We just know that she was still alive while she was strangled. The medical examiner's theory was that Amy had the bravery to try to flee once she realized that she was, quote, in for some horrible times. So after seeing her friends being shot, Amy realizes what's coming. So when they go to shoot her, she moves her head, causing the first shot to not penetrate her brain and kill her like it had the other girls. And a second shot was necessary to end Amy's life. The next major witness called to the stand was Melvin Stahl, the fire investigator that we mentioned at the top of the episode. Stahl had worked for the Austin Fire Department, like I said, for 25 years, and he testified that all three of the original fire and you know, arson experts on the scene had agreed that the fire originated on the metal storage shelves in the back room. Stahl explained that years later, actually it wasn't just years after the murders, it was also just shortly before the trial, after the four guys had been arrested, that he examined crime scene photographs that he had never seen before, and these photographs made him change his assessment of how the fire started, and that he now believed that the fire had originated on the girls' bodies. He actually claimed that it was pictures that changed his mind. But, I mean, this guy was actually at the crime scene. One would think a first-hand look at the scene would be a bit more conclusive than pictures. But it gets worse. These pictures that Stahl had never seen before, well, he took them. But he never mentioned in his testimony that he was the photographer of these pictures that changed his entire theory of how the fire started nine years after the girls were murdered. Apparently, this guy looked very uncomfortable during his testimony. At least that's what you hear. And I'm guessing that he didn't feel comfortable with what he was saying. It just looks like an attempt to make the evidence fit the confessions. Because Mike Scott said napkins and styrofoam cups were piled on top of the girls' bodies and doused with lighter fluid and lit. And after years of saying that the fire started on the shelves, just before trial, Stahl changes his theory from the shelves being the location where the fire started to the fire started on top of the girls' bodies. It is not photographs that changed his mind. On cross, the defense was able to elicit from Stahl that he had only changed his determination after being confronted with the boys' confessions years later. And 
some potentially manipulated fire assessment programming results created by the ATF that I will talk about again shortly. Stoll admitted basically that it wasn't just crime scene photos that changed his mind. It was the confessions and the software programming. In a powerful moment, the defense got Stahl to say that in all the years before the confessions, the DA's office never once asked him to re-examine his findings about where the fire started, or asked him to re-examine his determination that the fire had started on the shelves. Now, next up is Marshall Littleton. He's the ATF agent, and he explained how he used computer software to examine fire crime scenes and how after a few attempts, the software agreed with the confessions. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but then again, am I really? He didn't do his examination of the fire until November 1999, well after Rob and Mike had confessed. And he admits that initially the software didn't have the fire starting on the girls' bodies. It took adjustments for the software to arrive at that conclusion. So we have software that, after several attempts, produced results that matched Mike's confession and an original fire investigator that changed his theory of the fire shortly before trial to match this confession. To me, it looks clear the state is trying to change the facts to fit the confessions. But while the prosecution has two fire investigators testify that the fire started on the girls' bodies, none of the original arson investigators found evidence of gasoline or lighter fluid in their analysis of the crime scene. This is something that can't be changed. And this was an incredibly intense fire, and styrofoam is highly flammable. I mean, it's used to make homemade napalm. And I don't know if an accelerant would even have needed to be used if styrofoam was present in the area of the initial fire. The shelving unit was the storage place for the styrofoam cups, and it would have really fed the fire and made the fire grow quickly. Now, after all the fire testimony, Rob's confession was played for the jury, and the jury was supplied with a written transcript of the confession. And this was not your typical transcript, as some of the audio from the recording was not audible, so state investigators filled in the blanks. Yeah, you heard me. The jury was given a transcript where the police were allowed to decide what the defendant was saying when the recording was deficient. No, I just absolutely hate how this was handled. If the recording isn't clear, then let the jury decide what they hear. I don't think we should let the cops tell them what to hear. The way to try to fill in these gaps is through testimony. The cops could testify to what they allege was said during the interrogation to clear up places where the audio fails, and then the jury can decide if they want to believe the officer's account of the interrogation. But to just let law enforcement fill in the gaps by writing their own version of a transcript that goes unchallenged is like letting in testimony without cross-examination, which you're going to find out the judge is okay with. Now, I watched some of this interrogation, and honestly, you cannot hear Rob well. Some of what he says is almost completely unintelligible. I don't think that the police should have been able to fill in those blank spots. The police were the ones who set up the audio recording. If it wasn't done competently, then the police should pay the price for that, not the defendant. Instead, they were allowed to create their transcript, basically writing their own script. They were rewarded for their failure to properly record the interrogations. To make it even worse, the entire tape was not played. The prosecution picked the highlights that favored their case. It was like a greatest hits collection that allowed statements to be taken out of context and diminished the sheer length of the interrogation and the amount of pressure placed on Rob, including calling him a liar, while the investigators actively lied to him about the evidence. You don't get to see Rob being worn down. 
And that's an important part of false confessions. The feeling of hopelessness is almost always there when someone falsely confesses. And in Rob's interrogation, the hopelessness, you can feel it. You can see it. But you can't when you just see snippets of the interrogation. Now, the prosecution started to call some of the eyewitnesses. But not all the eyewitnesses, including not the ones that you would think would be the most important ones to call. The last two customers in the shop, Margaret and Tim, were never called to testify. Not by the prosecution, and then a colossal blunder by the defense, not by the defense. Even though they were the last people to see the girls alive, and saw two people sitting in a booth, you know, very close to closing time, ten minutes before, just sitting there and not eating. But Tim and Margaret don't ever testify at either trial, even though they very likely were the only people that saw the killers that night, other than the girls. Instead, the state called Lucella Jones. Now, she had gone to the shop sometime between 8.15 and 8.30, and that's about two and a half hours before the murders. Lucella was the witness that had seen two young men messing around with a brown paper bag at a table. In testimony that aged like milk, she explained that she used skin coloring to determine, to help her determine identity. Now, I'm of an age where we were raised to not see color which was stupid, so I know this wasn't even appropriate when this statement was made. I mean, I'm kind of kidding, but really, who the hell identifies people primarily on skin color? It kind of reeks of an attempt to fit identifications to known suspects. It might not be the case, but, I mean, it raises questions at the least. In her 1992 statement, she described the one boy as possibly Latino, but at the least, he had a dark complexion. None of the four boys charged, Mike, Rob, Forrest, Maurice, none of them were Latino, and none of them really appeared to have a dark skin tone in any way. But Lucilla would point out, of the four accused, she believed that Maurice Pierce looked the most like the man she saw that night. That's not a solid identification there. As a trial, Lucilla's description would evolve a little from her initial description. Initially, the guys were messing around or fiddling with a paper bag on the table, but as a trial, I'm not 100% sure... I think this is where the the idea is first introduced. You know, the boy was standing there and had his hand in the bag and he was rolling it around like in, a, in the sack in a threatening manner, which honestly, outside of cartoons, I don't even know that's possible. But it seemed to me that her initial statements after the murders were they were messing around with this bag. And then later, it's kind of evolved to there was something threatening about how they were doing something with this bag. I mean, how seriously, how can someone move his hand in a sack in a menacing manner? Try that in your next acting class. I mean, maybe she really thinks she remembers that. I think that could be the case. I think that she feels bad because she said that she had an immediate fearful feeling upon seeing those boys at the table. But because of what happened later that night in the shop, I think there is a chance that Lucilla is remembering things as more sinister than perhaps they were. She probably did get a bad vibe when she saw those young fellows. But after she heard about the murders and time passed, I think her impression of them became even more negative. But keep in mind, this is over two hours before the murders. And other witnesses don't recall seeing these two guys in the shop. So they left sometime after Lucella. The prosecution also called a highly questionable some highly questionable witnesses. The prosecution also called some highly questionable witnesses who claimed to be friends of the four accused boys. And these witnesses were used in an attempt to place the accused in the area of the mall the night of the murders with a gun. But the girl who testified, she admitted 
to doing acid that night. So I really don't give that much weight. I don't really think that much weight should be given to her testimony. I mean, she says she saw them somewhere around the guys around the mall. One of them had a gun. But she's on acid. Honestly, is this the best you got for a witness? Your best you got was Tim and Margaret. No one called them. But anyway, why she was even called to testify when she did acid that night? I mean, why is a jury hearing what she has to say? It's ridiculous. The state also called a witness who claimed that he saw Rob with a 380 in 1986 when Rob was 12. Also, Rob wouldn't have been living in Texas at that point. That's when he would have been living in West Virginia. I mean, it sounds more than a little questionable to me. And the guy, this witness, was currently in jail. This is as close to tying Rob to a murder weapon that the prosecution can get. The uncorroborated testimony of a prisoner that he saw a 12-year-old Rob with a 380 five years before the murders and halfway across the country. Because I'm assuming this happened in 1986 while Rob was living in West Virginia because he doesn't move to Texas until... 1991, the year of the murders. So I just think this is remote in time, remote in, in area. It's like a distance from where it happened. This guy's a prisoner. I mean, there's not a lot here that's making me want to trust this testimony. Now, another misfits called to testify that Rob had pulled a gun on him at a basketball court near the yogurt shop in the summer of 1991. But he, too, was currently in jail. I say take their testimony with a shaker of salt. I don't put much faith in jailhouse testimony. There is too much potential for lies. These guys are looking for early release or a recommendation to the parole board. And often this type of testimony works for them because a lot of states have a prosecutor from the district attorney's office appear at parole proceedings. And a recommendation for early release could go unnoticed until the incarcerated witness is up for parole, which could be years after they testify. And a defense or appellate attorney would have to be on the lookout for prosecutor's recommendation of early release. They wouldn't have any notice of it. It's not like the prosecutor is going to tell the defense that they agreed to make a positive statement at a parole hearing. I mean, legally, they are required to. That is Brady information. But do prosecutors do it? Most of the time, no. Prosecutors frequently deny that a deal has been made with jailed witnesses in exchange for their testimony. They just keep all agreements verbal, so there is no paper trail for a defense attorney to uncover. It's sneaky and dishonest, and it happens all the time. And even if it isn't what happened here, these prisoners still could have thought that they were currying favor with the state. Okay, remember how I said previously that the judge had delayed on ruling on motions for an obscene amount of time? Okay, I was more correct than I remembered because I implied in our last episode, well, implied, I might have outright said that the judge ruled that the confessions of each defendant could be used against the other defendant immediately before trial. But I was wrong. The judge actually delayed ruling on that motion so long that the decision wasn't made until partway through the trial. During the trial, this judge was still ruling on pre-trial motions, and yet he wouldn't give the defense more time to prepare, even though it looked like the judge needed more time to prepare for himself as well. Beverly Lowry claims in her book on the murders who killed these girls that a defense attorney told her that one of the prosecutors actually told the judge, dude, I need it, in reference to Mike Scott's confession coming into Rob's trial. The professionalism here really astounds me. Wait, I mean, the lack of professionalism here really astounds me. It was reported that the judge did have some level of a friendship outside of the courtroom with a prosecutor on the case. 
Maybe that's why we get this dude moment. Because while initially it seemed that the judge had no intention of letting Mike's confession be used in Rob's trial, he slowly changed his mind. And during the trial, he finally made his ruling that Mike Scott's confession could be used against Rob. First off, this ruling should have been done pre-trial. So both the prosecution and defense know how to prepare and present their cases. Second, it is 100% the wrong ruling. It would never stand up to scrutiny in higher courts. And in fact, it doesn't. And third, the idea that the state's case was so flimsy that a judge had to admit evidence that he had softly indicated he wasn't going to admit previously. You know, he has to change his mind to help the prosecution's case. is a testament to why the charges should never have been filed in the first place. Keep in mind that the entire time that the prosecution is trying to get Mike Scott's confession admitted into evidence at Rob's trial, the defense is desperately fighting its admission, and understandably so. And they have grounds. It's hearsay, and it violates the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment. But the judge finds that it falls within a hearsay exception, a statement against one's own interest. And I agree with that, which is basically that statements that could send someone to jail are not hearsay and can be admitted at trial. It's based on the idea that a statement that implicates yourself in a crime is likely to be truthful. The judge basically ignores the confrontation clause issue, which is in admitting Mike Scott's confession in Rob's trial, you're basically allowing Mike Scott to testify at Rob's trial. But the Confrontation Clause in the Constitution grants defendants the right to confront their accusers, which means to be able to cross-examine and question people that testify against them. But they can't compel Mike Scott to testify because of his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. But what is going on is Rob Springsteen is being denied the right to confront his accuser. And that's what he's going to win on appeal on later. But anyway, the judge basically says there's no confrontation clause issue here when there clearly is. And he admits a heavily redacted version of Mike Scott's confession at Rob's trial. All first person statements were removed, along with all references to Rob. Those were all taken out of Mike Scott's confession. What was left was a confusing mess that showed that someone else had confessed to the murders and implicated Rob. I mean, the jury had to infer that it implicated Rob because his name was redacted, but I think they knew who Mike was talking about because really, if he wasn't talking about Rob, then why was Mike's confession being introduced at Rob's trial? After a detective read Mike's confession in the courtroom, the court recessed for the day. And it's the judge's decision to admit into evidence Mike Scott's confession during Rob's trial that really shapes the outcome of the case, I think. I mean, I combine that with refusing the defense's repeated requests for more time to prepare for trial. I think those are the biggest outcome deciders. Because I just don't think the defense had enough time to really come up with a solid theory. I don't think the defense had enough time to come up with a really solid theory of third-party liability. You know, some other guy did it. Which I think if they had more time, they would have been able to do that. Because it's the defense, eventually, that comes up with the idea that's basically held by most people now, that the killers were those two men in the booth that Tim and Margaret saw, you know, about 10 minutes before the shop closed. And they present that at trial because they didn't come up with that until after trial. But anyway, I think Mike's confession coming in and the rush, rush, rush to trial. Because at the trial, there was actual very little evidence against Rob. No witness identified him as one of the men that was seen at the yogurt shop that night. No fingerprints, no DNA. The weapon that killed the girls was never recovered. There is no evidence that the boys knew the victims, and none of the boys have any criminal record of violent crimes. 
All the prosecution has are the jumbled up confessions of Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen, which both men recanted, but it will be enough to convict both men. Now, after Mike's confession is read into the record and a recess is called, Rob and his attorney were called to the judge's chambers, along with the prosecution team. Rob was offered a plea deal that probably both the prosecution and the judge thought would be quickly accepted. Rob was offered a life sentence of no more than 14 years, with time served, and Rob would have been out in eight years. As part of the plea bargain, Rob would have to testify against the other guys. And Rob refused to do that, and he rejected the plea offer. Rob said he didn't commit the murders, and neither did the other guys. Rob wasn't willing to falsely testify against them. Then this is such a dramatic turnaround from a guy who earlier had been manipulated into falsely confessing to a murder. He's become a different man. He's grown. The trial made him grow. Rob had really evolved since his arrest. Rob's lawyer told him it was likely that he would receive the death penalty, but Rob stood firm. And as a side note... What prosecutor offers a defendant that's accused of raping and murdering four teenagers a 14-year deal? Isn't that an insane offer? You wouldn't make that offer if you had any level of case. You know what I mean? It just shows how little they knew they had. But the guy still got convicted. With Rob refusing the plea deal, the prosecution rests its case, and the defense steps up to the plate. While there are over 50 confessions to the murders over the years, more than 50 people had confessed to these murders. The judge ruled that only two confessions could be referenced during the trial. When detectives testified about these confessions that were made by people that were never charged with the murders, they had to admit that a lot of the holdback information was widely known to the public, making the veracity of confessions harder to ascertain. So one of the defense's next witnesses was an expert on the science of fire. And I mean a real expert. Not just a government employee that could be harangued into agreeing with the state's theory of how the fire started. So it would line up with Mike Scott's confession. The defense fire expert was Dr. Gerald Hurst. And he seems like he's like a bit of an eccentric. Dr. Hurst initially started his career as a literal rocket scientist and then moved into the area of warfare when he taught U.S. troops how to use fire to attack the enemy. Next, he opened up his own company, and he was an inventor. And one of the things that he invented was the Mylar balloon. After selling this successful business, he became an expert on arson, and he would testify for free in criminal trials. I almost laughed out loud when the prosecution implied that he was testifying for a payday. I mean, we were talking about an actual rocket scientist that literally invented the Mylar balloon. I don't think he's hurting for cash. He's got balloon money. It's much more likely that he liked to use science to illuminate the truth and help the wrongfully accused. I also got the feeling that he kind of liked explaining how other experts were wrong and their analysis of arson and just fire and its behavior and how they were incorrect. But he even testified at one point he was going to do this for free. So it was like a dig at the guy that first didn't make any sense and then turned out to like not even apply. But anyway, I cannot emphasize this enough. The prosecution's theory of how the fire started was completely and utterly destroyed by Dr. Hurst's testimony. Keep in mind that no other fire investigator ever found that the fires started on the girls' bodies until Mike said that in his confession. And that sparked a drive to change previously long-held theories that the fire started on the shelves in the back room. So I doubt that even the state's experts felt confident in their testimony. 
Hearst, unlike the ATF agent that the prosecution used, had actually gone to the crime scene instead of just using software to make his determinations. And he quickly pointed out that the ATF agent had used the wrong equation to get the results. Hearst agreed with the original fire investigator, Marvin Stahl, that the fire originated on the metal storage shelves. The fire reaches the styrofoam cups on the shelves that made the fire quickly spread to the ceiling, pushing hot gases shooting down onto the girls' bodies on the floor. According to Hearst, the fire did not start on top of the girls' bodies, as Mike Scott said in his confession. Dr. Hearst thought that the fire only burned intensely for less than three minutes, and he testified that if an outside accelerant had been used, the fire investigators would have been able to smell it because they had arrived on the scene so quickly after the fire had started. And remember, no fire investigators smelled any accelerant. When I say fire investigators, I'm also going to include in there, like the forensic investigators also didn't smell any type of accelerant. On cross-examination, the prosecution outlined a scenario where the fire started on top of the girls' bodies and then asked if this was possible. Dr. Hurst said that if he was going to be asked about possibilities, he would always answer yes, because, you know, anything is possible. Dr. Hurst actually testified that the AFT agent had purposefully testified in a manner that would support the prosecution's fire theory, while he himself was only interested in the truth. I mean, that's why I get the feeling like he likes, like, cutting these other people down and, like, you know, pointing out where other people were wrong. In a moment of levity, the prosecutor asked if the best person to determine how a fire started was the person who started the fire. So just ask that person, you know, like just ask Michael Scott, because he's the one that said they started it on the girls' bodies. He's the one that started the fire. Wouldn't they know? Well, Dr. Hurst cut the legs out of that argument when he pointed out that frequently people who start fires are also liars that can't be trusted. And the prosecutor actually acknowledged the truthfulness of this statement. Yeah, firebugs? can often also be liars. <laughs> Finally, Dr. Hurst testified that he didn't think that Jennifer had rolled off of the pile of the girls' bodies. He thought all bodies were in their final position when the fire started. And this makes sense because underneath Jennifer, there was part of the floor that was not burnt. Now, next up for the defense was an expert on false confessions, but the expert was not well received. He was kind of snooty and got on the judge's nerves which really isn't a good mix. Because when a jury can tell that the judge doesn't like a witness, that impacts how the jury interprets that witness. Rob had decided that he wanted to testify on his own behalf, against the advice of his attorney. And Rob couldn't be talked out of testifying. And I think I wouldn't have tried to talk him out of testifying, because I think if he hadn't, I think he would have regretted it for the rest of his life. So I think it's something that you almost have to let a defendant do when they're adamant about it. Now, on direct, Rob made a good impression. When Rob was asked why he didn't leave the interrogation room, Rob replied that he was under the impression that he was not permitted to leave. Rob also testified he thought that he had invoked his right to an attorney. He said they ignored his questions about his options, so he basically thought he didn't have any options. And this is all clear. Like, you do hear the officers tell him he's free to leave, but I also get the feeling from the way he behaves that he doesn't think that's the case. Also, I did hear him on occasions. To me, it seemed like he was evoking his right to an attorney, which were all ignored. Like, they weren't addressed by the cops. They were ignored. When he was asked why he would confess if he was innocent, Rob said he thought the police had to have evidence to back up guilt. And because he knew he was innocent, he knew there would be no evidence of guilt. 
So because Rob's innocent, he thinks that the physical proof will show his innocence. And it does. What he doesn't understand is that once they have that confession, they're looking for evidence to support the confession. They're not looking for anything that's going to show Rob's innocence. Rob also said that he guessed the caliber of the second gun. One of the detectives had said that it was a large gun, and a three eighty was the only large caliber gun that Rob had ever heard of. Just a guess. He knew it was a large caliber. He knew it wasn't a twenty two. On cross-examination, things didn't go as smoothly. Testifying may have been a mistake. I could see why Rob wanted to do it, and I could see why his defense attorneys agreed to it. But there were some not good moments during cross-examination. There were times when objections should have been made, and I don't know if they were made and they were overruled or not. I couldn't see that. But there were times when the prosecutor would make accusatory statements directed at Rob you know, saying he's guilty of the murders, that were not questions. And that was very confusing to me because that's usually unheard of or at least objected to and sustained. Prosecutor during cross-examination doesn't just get to make blanket statements about the defendant's guilt. And they kind of did here, which is weird. So after Rob's testimony, which was not a high point, that's when the defense rested. I kind of feel like maybe they should have had Dr. Hurst last because he really had some really good testimony for them. It would be more of ending the defense's case on a high. After closing arguments, the jury retired to determine Rob's fate. With three hours of deliberations, they returned their verdict of guilty. Now facing sentencing, the defense does not offer any mitigating evidence, and the jury sentences Rob to death. It's highly unusual to not offer mitigating testimony during sentencing, and there really is, I'm going to say, no excuse for this, unless it was a calculated attempt to show ineffective assistance of counsel and help Rob set up some eventual appeals. One defense attorney said there was no way for them to counter the highly emotional testimony of Amy's father, Bob Ayers. But that makes no sense because I think you have to at least try. I mean, a man's life is on the line. Get someone up there to say some good things about him. He has a wife, a mother, a father. There were school teachers that had liked him. Get someone up there to talk about him. I mean, one of Rob's school teachers had a farm that Rob went to, and she said she considered Rob to have been the gentlest of the students with the animals. She was in West Virginia, but I mean, I would see if I could get her to testify. Now, I know Rob's grandmother said that she wasn't able to testify because she knew that she would cry during her testimony, and she couldn't sit up there on the stand crying in front of the girl's parents. And I think that's very respectable on her part. But I just think someone needs to stand up for Rob. Because when we watch Mike's case, which we're going to talk about in our next episode, because when we talk about Mike's case, he does have mitigating witnesses put on for the sentencing phase. And he gets a different sentence than Rob. Rob's sentenced to death. Mike's sentenced to life. And the difference is Mike had mitigating witnesses for the sentencing phase. And I really hope this failure to offer any mitigating witnesses has a reason that I just don't understand. Because if not, he was just hung out to dry by those entrusted to defend him. It's not surprising that the jury returned a finding that resulted in Rob receiving a death sentence because there was nothing to dissuade them from doing that. I do think it's appalling that they could convict him within three hours and the only evidence against him really is his confession, which he recanted, and the confession of another accused person that was also recanted. There's no physical evidence. There's no eyewitness evidence. It's just confessions that people have walked back. And to be able to convict somebody in three hours on that, to me, is very disturbing. And this is where I'll leave you. Rob Springsteen has been convicted, and he has received the death sentence. 
And next time, when I talk about the Austin Yogurt Shop murders, I'll be addressing the Mike Scott trial. Bye.